You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. I love that song. Everything that is crucially important to us in life about our need and about our hope and about our triumph in Christ is in the words to that song, in Christ alone. I'm going to read you some scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Uh, One of the joys of church family is that we get to participate in the process of dedicating children to God. And uh, this morning, for this morning, uh, the Carmichaels, Dennis and Janine, have have asked if they could dedicate their daughter, Everly. I'm going to call you guys up. Come on up. Everly was born in November, and she's a cutie, and she's got a great, wonderful big sister, Avia, who's coming up as well. Come on up. This is my favorite part. <laughs> There's really three things that are happening when we do this dedication. Three kinds of dedications, really. Uh, first of all, we're dedicating Everly. Uh, the Carmichaels are dedicating her to the Lord and saying she is in God's hands and asking for God's blessing on her, that he will bless her by, by growing her to be close to him and to use her life for his glory. Let's try this like this. There we go. That's awesome. Yeah. And also, uh, they are also dedicating themselves as parents, uh, being intentional about about parenting in such a way as to as to help Everly grow in Christlikeness. And also, we're dedicating ourselves as well as a church. And this is the part that we all enter into. We want to be a spiritual support to you guys uh, as you parent your kids uh, in whatever way that we can, prayerfully, and to uh, to be family with you. So I'm going to invite us to pray. We're going to pray. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your deep, deep love for us. You know Everly completely. You knit her together, and you see her, and you're going to know her for her whole life. And we pray, first of all, that you would bless her. We pray that you would bless her uh, with health, But we also pray, especially, most crucially, like we just sang, that you would bless her with the knowledge of Christ and that you would grow her in Christ-likeness, that you would grow her, that she she would come to put her life in your hands by her own choice. And we pray that you would grow her into somebody who reflects you and that you will use for your kingdom's glory. And we pray for Dennis and Janine. I thank you for them, and we thank you for Avia as well, for this wonderful family that you've put together. I pray that you would bless Dennis and Janine as well as parents. I pray that you would give them wisdom um, as they parent and make decisions. And I thank you, Lord, that you've already given them a heart that knows you, that knows your salvation. And I pray that you you would bless the heart that they have to pass that along to their children and that you would give them all kinds of different wisdom about how to do that. 
And I pray for us as a church. I pray that you would bring this family to our minds, not just today, but in the future as well, that we would pray for them and that we would be available in whatever way is needed as family in the body of Christ to support Dennis and Janine in the raising of their kids. And once again, Lord, we thank you for this very special gift of Everly and how you've already shown your faithfulness as you brought her through some some different times since she's been in this earth in such a short time, but struggling with uh, pneumonia a few weeks ago. I thank you for her health today. Thank you, Lord, for answering prayer, and we give you praise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give you Everly. There you are. We also have a gift for you guys. This is a book called Raising Kids for True Greatness by Dr. Tim Kimmel. He's got lots of uh, good insights about parenting. I'll pass this along to you as well. God bless you guys. You. Could maybe get some medical attention to that left arm of. Uh... <laughs> I knew everybody was thinking it. <laughs> oh, boy. Just bugging you, Kevin. Oh, dear. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be able to um, <clears throat> share with you this morning uh, something we, we uh, I don't think we've ever formally done. Uh, in our service, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as a church family, we have been growing in partnership with various missions and agencies that work in Manitoba and around the world. And uh, one of the recent partnerships that we have especially been uh, concentrating on and, and uh, uh, growing in is a partnership with Canadian Baptist Ministries, with Samong Presbyterian Church, and with the Bolivian Baptist Union. Two years ago, the two churches that meet in this building took a team to Bolivia, 10 people, and we investigated about 10 different projects. We ended up narrowing it down to two focal points that we would like to invest in. And so with Canadian Baptist Ministries guiding, we, we've entered into a, a formal partnership agreement whereby we send $10,000 uh, annually to that field where it's used in various projects and uh, mostly in these two projects. And then also uh, we have a chance to go as a team and send people and they come here sometimes as well. And uh, it's a privilege this morning to be able to have Dennis Sherman, who is the Director of Short-Term Missions for Canadian Baptist Ministries as well as for Discipleship, Global Discipleship Ministries. And uh, he's going to come now and share with us a little bit more about the partnership agreement. And Dennis happened to be the uh, field uh, lead, leader, team leader on, in Bolivia. No stories, no. When uh, Pat and I and our family arrived in Bolivia. And so uh, it's, it's been great. We've had a long friendship. And Dennis, why don't you share with us a little bit more? Terry, I'm a little, uh, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed that uh, Kevin got the baby dedication and I got the... No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Um, it's great for me to be able to renew former friendships and to see particularly the Jank family. Um, I can tell stories about the children, but I won't do that on them. Um, and great privilege of being able to serve with them and now to be here amongst them in their ministry in this church, but we'll be with you as well. The dedications this morning, you're dedicating something really quite unique 
as two churches. Uh, I get the privilege of being able to dedicate and to bring ministry to churches like yourselves from across the world through our organization, about 30 countries, and we engage and I engage with the Canadian constituency into meaningful ministry and bring those ministries to it. And God bless us. Uh, you are entering into unique ministry together as two churches, but really with Canadian Baptist Ministries and with the Bolivian Baptist Union. We have 21-step churches officially with our organization across Canada that serve in six countries. One of them is Bolivia. Nowhere do we have this kind of partnership. And I'll tell you, we get excited, and I get very excited because it's unique. It is more than just sending $10,000 to two specific programs that you're going to engage into. It's about people and making a difference and mutually bringing solidarity together and learning. Going with your team that will go in July and entering into meaningful ministry, but taking expertise and knowledge, using gifts and talents and being able to serve the Bolivian Baptist Union and the ministry there. But like-minded going and learning and receiving from them to bring ministry and experience back into your local context. And I'll tell you, nothing excites me more when I visit churches and they get this concept. That's what STEP is about, engaging together, learning, and entering into mutuality. Yes, the funding is very important to continue the ministry in Bolivia. You will use those funds to train leaders in spiritual formation and in the seminary that Pat and Terry taught in in Cochabamba, Bolivia. And making a difference in those leaders to go out into the churches, into the areas that just desperately need the word of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, being able to help in the devastating disease and the need to redo homes in the rural areas with that Chagas disease. But it is about relationship. Know that you will make a difference because you are willing to step out as partners into that ministry and we wait upon God to reveal that and bless you as churches. Very unique. We are thankful, and we say thank you, from Canadian Baptist Ministries on behalf of the Bolivian Baptist Union for what you are going to enter into. We want to pray for this agreement, not simply because we've got a piece of paper that we sign and we're going to hold you to it, but it's a symbol. It's an act of this whole church it isn't just simply Terry coming and the pastor coming and myself and the Bolivian Baptist Union signing. We're doing that on your behalf. We're doing it together, two churches, believers in Christ and followers in Christ, and committing to do extension of ourselves into ministry. So I want to invite you both to come. I want to sign this document. There's actually three documents. One will stay with the Presbyterian Church. One will stay with your church here, the Baptist church. I will take one and I will deliver it to Bolivia. And they will sign it and they will put it in a prominent place that will remind them of the commitment that they have to you, to the two churches. And it will remind you, as two churches, the commitment that you have to Bolivia. So we're going to do that now. Let's sign together. In everything, we are to be in prayer. 
And I know that the Bolivian Baptist Union and our leaders are praying. And they know of what is happening here this morning. They've been informed. You're going to be sending out a team, and this is your team that's going out in July. This is a start. Well, actually, you've already sent a team. It's two churches. Mm -hmm. But this is a continuation of that commitment and, again, that learning and the ministry together. Continue to pray for them. They're an extension of you, of the two churches. And I've asked if if, uh, you would pray in Korean, you would pray in Spanish, and I will close in English. Let's pray together. Amen. Let's pray. 하나님 아버지 감사를 드립니다. CBM, Y리치 베프티스트 그리고 위니팩 소망 함께 볼리비아 미션에 참여하게 하여 주심을 감사를 드립니다. 스텝 어그리먼트를 통하여서 하나님 나라를 이루어가는 우리 모두 될수 있도록 신령한 복으로 축복하여 주시옵소서. Padre amado, te damos gracias, Señor, por el cuerpo de Cristo. Gracias te damos, Señor, por la Iglesia Bautista de Whitebridge, también la Iglesia Presbiteriana de, de Somán, por la misión CBM, también la Unión Bautista Boliviana, Señor. Te damos gracias por el convenio que entramos eh, en la esperanza que por medio de esto, Señor, podemos impactar, podemos influir la, el mundo y especialmente, Señor, la la nación de Bolivia. Gracias te damos por el privilegio de servirte y te pedimos, que, Señor, que uh, nos des uh, toda la gracia y el misericordia necesaria para cumplir tu propósito. En el nombre de Jesús. Amén. Father, we are grateful that we can enter into ministry in this way. We say and acknowledge that this is your ministry and you have called us to it. We pray that you would walk with us that you would give us all that is needed to honor you and to glorify you in this ministry. Use these churches, use the Bolivian Baptist Union, and use Canadian Baptist Ministries together to serve you and make a difference in that place. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you. And first and foremost, we want to thank you for your son and the privilege of following him and knowing that you love us. Mm-hmm. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. One last thing I'd like to do and I'd like to leave for you as two churches is a reminder. And we've made up two plaques. They are the same. You are two distinct churches. But we ask that you would receive these plaques as two churches and hang them in a prominent place. Now I realize that you worship in the same church. You might want to put them in one end or the other. Terry, (laughs) not in your office. But it's a reminder of your unique partnership and commitment as a church and as a congregation to the ministry. And then when people walk through the door of this church and don't know it, you can explain what God has called you to. Because that's important as well. STEP in the acronym means to serve, to train, to empower in partnership. That's what you're going to be doing. This will help you tell the story. So we give them to you for that reason. Hang them in that place where you can share. God bless you all. Amen.
Amen. It is great to be able to uh, have that uh, kind of ceremonial beginning to the partnership for three years. And uh, this afternoon we'll be visiting with uh, Samong Church in their service and doing the same, the same thing. Well, someone has said that you are either just coming out of a trial, you are in a trial right now, or you are about to enter a trial in your life. <laughs> It uh, doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12 that uh, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Part of life. James writes this way. He says, uh, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance and it must complete its goal and so on. And uh, so in, in, in one of those strange ways, we, we can actually see that God's hand is upon us, especially in those difficult days. And one of the things that we're learning as we study the life of David is how he dealt with trials. We haven't seen too much of that yet, but we're about to enter in to part of the story of David's life that is indeed full of many trials of various kinds, and how he dealt with them, what he did. One of the things that he did, that David is especially known for, is the 75 Psalms of the 150 that we have in our Bible that are attributed to David, the shepherd boy king that we know of in Scripture. And uh, before we look at uh, the the Scripture and the story of David that we're going to look at today, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 59. The book of Psalms and chapter 59. And uh, this scripture takes place in the events of 1 Samuel 19. And so in chapter 59 of Psalms, we read about what David wrote around the time when Saul was pursuing him to kill him and he had to flee from his own home. So would you stand with me as you hear God's word? Psalm 59 beginning with verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight, O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. We're going to stop there. May God bless his word to us at this point today. We study the Psalms and uh, many people classify them in different ways. I like the way... A man by the name of Walter Brigham classifies psalms. He uses three categories to describe all the different psalms. The one category he describes are called orientation psalms. Orientation psalms are the kinds of psalms that you might write or that David wrote or others when life is good, when all is well, when God is on his throne and you are in your place and, and things are, are happening fine. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd 
I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Everything is going well. Psalm 24, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the, the trees and the fields and everything. God is sovereign. He's on His throne. Everything's okay. Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalms of orientation. Brighamon also talks about psalms of disorientation. And he classifies those kinds of psalms where, of course, called laments sometimes. And these kinds of psalms, when you read them and you're going through a trial, they jump off the page at you. They, they come right at you because your experience resonates with them. These are the psalms that are written when, when life is coming apart, when doubts and fears prevail. And often they're composed in a form of a question like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray morning by morning. I lay my request before you and I wait in expectation. These are psalms of disorientation that are written during times of trial and difficulty. And then thirdly, there are psalms of new orientation. And these are psalms written in the aftermath of having come through a trial, having come through something, God has taught you something, there's been a new awareness of the incredible grace and majesty of God, been new awareness of your own self, and in memory of that you write something, or the psalmist writes something, and it's a new depth of discovery. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He listened to my cry. He, he lifted me out of the slimy pit. He put my feet upon a rock. He gave a new song and put a new song in my mouth. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is a new discovery. This is a new, new season. A new journey of faith has begun. God has proven himself. And now this new orientation is characterizing my journey of faith. Well, we see David write all three kinds of psalms in his repertoire. And from this day forward, I would encourage you in our study of 1 Samuel to take out the psalms on a daily basis and read one before you begin your day and see how it resonates with you. You see, one of the differences in reading a narrative like we've been looking at in 1 Samuel compared to the Psalms is that in the narratives, we can often have this sort of distant disconnectedness that, well, that's about David. That's, that's about Saul. It really doesn't have much to do with me. But when we read the Psalms, we read things like, Oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My heart longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, now I'm speaking in I first person terms and I either have to have this mental gymnastics and say, Oh, I'm just, I'm just reading what David wrote. I'm just reading what David wrote. Or I enter into it and I say, this is what I am praying now to you, O oh God. That's why God gave us the Psalms. Because in our realm of experience, we're meant to enter into it, to learn how to pour out our hearts to God and how to pray. Well, in the past few weeks, we've been doing a study of 1 Samuel, and the author has been giving us a comparative study. 
The comparison is between two key leaders, two kings of Israel, Saul and David. We have seen how God's Spirit had anointed both of them to be king of Israel. We have seen that God did not withhold His resources to anoint them and empower them to do what God had asked them to do. And yet, in the two instances, we see the sun rise on one life and we see the sun setting on another life. We see the one life making wise decisions and we see the other life making foolish decisions. Two lives, equally treated by God, two different outcomes. Today, as we continue this comparative study, we go to another layer deeper as we understand Saul and David because we are introduced to a third person that is key for us to understand Saul and David deeper. And that is the son of Saul, whose name is Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul and the best friend of David. And in the narrative that we read about their interactions, we we come to a deeper place of understanding both Saul and David. And so as we follow the storyline, we are learning lessons of faith. We are learning about how dangerous it is to hate the things that the Lord loves and to love the things that the Lord hates. We learn from this that there's a conflict that exists in every one of us who determined our lives to be Christ followers. And we learn through the life of Jonathan that there comes a moment of decision when, when we have to declare our allegiance. There comes a time in every one of us in our faith journey where there's a, a fork in the road and you need to choose this day whom you will serve. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've crossed that barrier before. You know what it's like to have various affections and allegiances war on your heart. Jonathan is an incredible example of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If you'll notice in the insert in your bulletin, a green piece of paper, I have a quote from John Woodhouse. Where it says, in the story that 1 Samuel tells, Jonathan is a model of a disciple of the future king. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. And we can well imagine David saying to Jonathan, if Saul hates you, know that he has hated me before you. Jonathan was called to love David more than he loved his own father. It was a matter of choosing between the future king and his own flesh and blood. So this morning, in the time that we have, more than simply look at a few superficial principles about good friendship, I would like us to look at two broad-brushed principles of Jonathan's life that characterize uh, him in his friendship with David, and I believe could be incredibly important in helping us understand our relationship to Jesus Christ as disciples. And first of all, you'll notice from the outline that First of all, Jonathan's friendship with David reflects a lasting covenant. His friendship with David reflects a lasting covenant, which is reflective of an enduring enduring love. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take a look at some important verses with me. And we'll begin in chapter 18. Now, I want you to know that we see the beginning of the relationship between Jonathan and David in chapter 18, verse 1. 
And it says, after David had finished talking with Saul. Why was he talking to Saul? Because he had just finished, in chapter 17, killing the giant Goliath. And Saul said, whose son is that? Oh, it's the son of Jesse. Well, bring him to me. I want to talk to him. And so now, Jonathan gets an up-close look at this guy, this boy, this shepherd boy that killed the giant Goliath. And it says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him. He did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So here we see entering into this incredible, deep relationship, Jonathan and David, a friendship that was so enduring based on a covenant. It was as though Jonathan was waiting for David and David was waiting for Jonathan. It was as though Jonathan was waiting to find a man that he could look up to. He was waiting for a man that could become a kindred spirit with him. He was waiting for a man that he could look to and respect. And he had wanted to find that man in his father Saul, but Saul did not live that kind of life that he could measure up to. Jonathan had already had tension with his father. We see it in chapter 14, where we see Jonathan willing to go and attack the Philistines while his father waited fearfully under a tree. We see that there had been tension in that relationship. And Jonathan was waiting to find someone he could respect and follow. And along comes David. It seems that though they had been prepared for each other. And I wonder if you have had a relationship like that. I wonder if you have a a kindred spirit friendship that you could point to and you can say, man, man, God prepared that person for me at just the right time. If you have one person like that, you are blessed. Sometimes when we go into transitions, we move locations and life gets turned around, we have to leave some of those close friendships. It's difficult to reestablish those kinds of relationships. This was no ordinary friendship. It was based on a covenant. Take a look at chapter 20 with me. And notice that it says in verse 8, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. Chapter 20, verse 16, notice, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Look at verse 42. The end of verse 41, Jonathan and David are parting ways because Saul is driving David away. He's trying to kill him. And, and it says that they wept. David wept the most. And then it says in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Friends, this was no ordinary friendship. This was a covenant friendship that was built on a foundation of enduring commitment love. And we see in this scripture that there was such a deep loyalty, a self-giving love. It was rare to find. Now, there's a lot of narrative that we're looking at in chapters 18 to 20 that we don't have time to go through. But you could summarize these chapters with four rescue stories. Okay, there are four rescue stories of David being rescued in these chapters. The first one we find in chapter 19, beginning in verse one. And Saul wants to kill David. We read, but Jonathan intercedes by going to his father and convincing his father not to kill David. 
And Saul ends by saying, okay, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm not going to kill David. Unfortunately, in verse 8 and 9, we see an evil spirit come upon Saul. He opens the door to this evil spirit. And all of a sudden, he's back to plan A. He wants to kill David. And so we see the rescue story number two in verses 8 to 17 when Saul sends a bunch of soldiers over to David's home. Now remember, David is married to Saul's daughter, Michael. Now in the first story, it's, it's, it's his son, Jonathan, that rescues him. In the second story, it's his daughter, Michael, that rescues him. And so uh, Michael uh, convinces the soldiers uh, and they leave and by the time they get back, David has made his escape. The third story is found in the latter part of chapter 19. And in this case, David now has fled to find Samuel, the prophet, to seek out some refuge. And, and Saul gets a bunch of soldiers together, sends them off to Ramah to look for Samuel and David. And instead of going and capturing him or killing him, when they get near to where Samuel, the prophet, is, where David is, All these soldiers that are intent on killing David are struck by the Spirit of God who rushes upon them and they begin to just praise the Lord. They just begin to prophesy. They forget what they were there for and they return to Saul. Saul sends some more soldiers. They do the same thing. Finally, Saul's exasperated and he himself goes. He gets near to Ramah where David and Samuel are. He starts prophesying and praising the Lord. The the Spirit of God now is rescuing David from the hand of Saul. We see this downward spiral. Saul is insane with envy, with pride. And so we see in chapter 20, the fourth rescue story. It's the longest one. And it really has to do with a a plot that Saul Saul has. He's going to invite David and all the generals to come around for the new moon festival. But Jonathan and David have conspired. And David has said, I know your dad wants to kill me if I don't show up and he gets angry, you will know that he wants to kill me. If he's fine with the fact that I don't show up on the first, second day, then you'll know that it's okay. And so they, they agree together. Festival comes along. Sure enough, Saul is not just prepared to kill him, but in fact, he's prepared to kill his own son. He picks up his spear after Jonathan tells him what's happened and he hurls it at his own son, ready to kill him. You see, Saul has gone off the deep end. Now, he is he is lost perspective. He's prepared to even kill his own son because he thinks that there's someone trying to steal his throne. Jonathan's love for David is now tested to the full limit. And we see this picture of commitment, love. And, and that's why it's such an incredible picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. God says in his word that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And, and here we see David committed, or Jonathan committed to loving David in this kind of a way. I must say that I, I often have to question my love for Jesus. I often must say that, that I, I look at my life and I look at how much Jesus has loved me. And I look at how much I can turn around and love sin. I can love sin in spite of the fact that Jesus has poured out such incredible love upon me. Even in the face of that, I can turn around and I can love sin greater than I love Jesus. It is an incredible, incredible love that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. 
And our love is to, to respond to that love of self-giving sacrifice and say, God, nothing is going to come between me, me and you. No external enemy, no internal affection, nothing is going to come between us. I think of that old hymn, Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. That's, that's what our heart's cry is. And we know we fall so far short of what he deserves. You know, the, this, this covenant relationship is reflected in, in the marriage covenant as well. <clears throat> you see, you, you cannot decide that you're going to keep Christ first and avoid any other loves in your life that are going to war against the love of Jesus in you. You cannot do that by simply resolving not to love something else greater than Jesus. The thing that will do it for you is if you just keep on cultivating love for Jesus as the highest and greatest joy in your life. And it's similar to the marriage relationship. I have to continually go back to that covenant that I made with Pat 30 some years ago. 32 years ago. And that covenant is the basis of our enduring love. And I cannot hope to neglect that relationship, neglect that love, and somehow in the midst of that negligence, somehow think that I am insulated from lust and temptation and adultery and other things that would come my way and knock at my door. The insulation of those things against those things is a cultivated, enduring covenant love with my wife. That's the same with our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are not getting up in the morning and saying, is my heart right with God? Is the affections of my heart toward you? The psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. If that's not the way you are, well, then be careful because there's definitely, there's definitely going to be a lot of other loves that will come streaming in to that vacuum in your heart where Jesus is meant to fill. So the first thing that I want to remind you of is from the life of Jonathan to David, we see a covenant love. And that covenant love is meant to reflect our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As well, we see secondly that a, a loyal kingdom, a relationship of humble service. I want you to turn in your Bibles again to chapter 18 and look at verse 4. Chapter 18, verse 4. It says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, I tell you, I read that so quickly the first time I read it that it, it totally escaped the significance of that. That, that is an incredible verse. Okay, this, this is Jonathan talking here. This is Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of the king of Israel. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne. Jonathan, the next to be king of Israel after Saul dies, is taking off his royal robes, his royal garments, his king's sword, bow, and everything about him. And he is giving it as a symbol of this covenant that he's made to his friend David. He's saying, in essence, I, I know that you're going to be king. I'm passing it on. It's incredible. 
Incredible verse. What happens in in verse 4? As they form this covenant. Even though there's never a suggestion that David intended ever to take the kingdom by force, though he'd been anointed as king in chapter 16, Jonathan somehow, it's uncanny that he has this understanding. David, you're the one. You're destined. You're anointed. You're going to be the king, not me. And Jonathan willingly offers it. In fact, look at the dialogue further. Would you turn in in your Bibles to chapter 20 again? And look at the dialogue in verse 30. We're in the middle of this new moon festival. David has not shown up. Saul knows that Jonathan has conspired against him. What does he say in verse 30? It says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. You see, Jonathan was so unlike his father. His father had already, in his foolishness, given over his understanding in the deceitfulness of his own pride, thinking that David would try to steal the throne right out from under his son's nose. He couldn't understand why, how blind his son was, because pride and envy and jealousy had blinded him to the Lord's anointed that stood before him in David, the hope of Israel that stood before him in David. Jonathan, though, saw it coming. Let me turn to one more scripture in chapter 23. In chapter 23, we get a picture of the last recorded visit that David and Saul enjoy. This is after having fled from Saul in chapters 21 and 22. And now he, in chapter 23, has this moment of meeting up. It says in chapter 23 and verse 14, David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the deserts of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Verse 15, while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father, Saul, will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father, Saul, knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then Jonathan went home and David remained at Horish. Incredible words. Incredible words. I mean, you will be king of Israel and I will be second to you. It is one thing to say such words if there were no human reason to think otherwise. But friends, Jonathan was a valiant warrior in his own regard. He had the respect of the entire army of Israel. He had many people that were were rooting for him. He was the heir to the throne by nature and and blood. and, and, And everything was in his favor. Few people would have their humility tested like this. In terms of how they would respond And yet he says to David, I know, I see the anointing of God. You will be king and I will be second to you. I was trying to think of 
if, if I've had experiences in my life where I could identify with this. And uh, one of them came to mind right away because Dennis is, is here. And when we arrived on the field, I had to submit to Dennis, uh, who was uh, the, the, the field leader uh, for two years. Then he left and I took his place. And, uh, and there were a few stories in there where I, I didn't like some of the decisions that Dennis made. Uh, you know, but he was a great leader and uh, I had to learn that. I remember another thought that came to my mind was when I was at Winnipeg Bible College in the 80s and, and uh, I was uh, somehow friend of mine, Larry Levy. Gary remembers Larry. And I were put together as a twosome to become uh, student body president and vice president. And I don't know how it happened, but we landed so that Larry was going to be the president and I was going to be the vice president. And a professor, a professor came to me when they heard that announcement, and, and, and she said to me, how come Larry's the president and you're the vice president? <laughs> and you know, just for a split second, just for a moment, I had that thing come down and it started to, yeah, yeah, why is that? You know, I, I had to make a decision that I saw God's hand in it. In time, I saw that I had this incredible great year. He got all the problems. I just had to sort of be the vice president. And the next year, I got to be the president. God probably has some of you in the similar situation. You've got your lessons to learn. God says, I'm going to teach you a, a hard lesson on humility. Is it your ability to, to step back and to say, I can see the hand of God in this somehow. I can see what God is up to. I can see where the anointing of God is upon this life or my life. I think about John the Baptist, who in his own right was an incredibly powerful man. It says in the scriptures that he came in the power, the spirit and power of Elijah. He preached such force that, that people were leaving the cities and towns and going out to the wilderness where he was. And they were being baptized by him. They were leaving family and all their goods behind. They were saying, we'll be your followers, John. And it says in the scriptures, I mean, if he wanted to, if he lost perspective on the fact that he was meant to be the best man, not the groom, if he ever lost sight of that, uh, uh, he'd be done. But he saw the anointing of God upon Jesus, the Son of God, and he knew his place was to be this voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, get ready, because the Lord is coming. And when, he, when people came to him and said, are you the one? Are you the one? He said, no. I'm not the one. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one that I'm announcing. And his testimony is summed up in John chapter 3, verse 30, where it says, He must become greater, and I must become less. See, that's the attitude. That's the loyal attitude of a, of a servant of Jesus Christ, is that I don't care what happens to me. If you, can, if you forget about me, in the long run, if you forget about me, that doesn't matter. But what matters is, the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and to get ready to conclude the service this morning. And um, there's some questions on that sheet of paper that's an insert in your bulletin. And I would encourage you to ponder some of those questions in your own reflection or discussions. If you've ever felt conflicted in your allegiance to Jesus Christ, if you haven't, be, be prepared, you will at one point. Because anyone who wants to live a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some way. And so as we continue on, may the Lord direct us to live out these qualities of discipleship that we've learned from Jonathan. God bless you.